Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. Up in Southern California, I was born in India and I grew up in Southern California. And growing up in Southern California, we lived in an apartment complex. In fact, last uh, October when Libby and I uh, took a trip down to California, I was able to drive through the neighborhood that I grew up in. Boy, everything is so much smaller as an adult, isn't it? Like, I used to think that I would walk miles and miles to school. I, I Googled the distance, and it was like 0.14 miles to school. Um, we went down the alley uh, where the apartment complex was, and everything just seemed smaller, and then we peered around the corner and looked at that last uh, house that was at the end of the row of the apartments and to think that all six of us lived in that tiny home, uh, but we had great memories moving there. Um, The nice thing about living in an apartment is you don't have to do any of the landscaping, right? There's people that do that all for you, and that was the case there. And when I was 14 years old, we moved from that home in Santa Ana to uh, our home where my parents still live today in Orange, California. And that was awesome, and that was um, right across the street from a high school, and it was in a good neighborhood, and we all got our own rooms, and I didn't know what I was missing when I didn't have my own room, but we all got our own rooms, and one thing that came with this new home was the front yard, and it had grass on it and everything, and so I remember my dad going to the store and buying a lawnmower. We had never owned one before. We never needed one before. Everything was taken care of as I would see them mowing the lawns there at the apartment, never had to do it myself, 14 years old. And I don't think my dad has ever read Tom Sawyer, but you know the story of Tom Sawyer painting the fence? My dad had some serious Tom Sawyer going on that first day we had the lawnmower. And I remember he got it and he put it together and we filled it with gas and everything about it looked exciting. Everything did, and he cranked that thing up, and I remember me, my brother, my other brother, my sister, my mom, we just watched. There dad went mowing the lawn, and before you knew it, he just looked at one of us and said, you want to try? And like, at this point, I'm 14, I have read Tom Sawyer before, but something happened in me, and I thought, yes, I would love to mow the lawn. Thank you, dad. He, He chose me, guys. I'm the youngest, but he still chose me. I remember pushing the lawnmower for the first time and just mowing the lawn and afterwards wondering why it was so difficult. The next week I did it again, and I remember thinking, this shouldn't, like when my dad did it, he just kind of, it just kind of moved, right? And I started the thing, and I just, I just, it felt like, I had to do everything I could to move the lawnmower. And I remember thinking that when we shopped for it, the box said self-propelled lawnmower. And I realized I had been pushing it in my own strength. And there was just this simple lever. And as soon as you did the lever, it took off for you. I won't say how long it took me to figure that out. You ever go through life and you're just, you're pushing along in your own strength, right? The story of Acts is really this amazing story 
how this small group of believers just said, how do we make this thing go? Oh, it's not us at all. It's this power that comes with us and within us. As we study the book of Acts, we are looking through the story how God directs the expansion of his kingdom throughout the world through a spirit-empowered church. So it's this idea that the church's power comes from the Holy Spirit. Last week we discussed the person of the Holy Spirit and we talked about ways that we can identify the Holy Spirit as a person and central to this understanding or maybe this misunderstanding is as believers when we think of the Holy Spirit, this is from last week, we often think of the Holy Spirit as a what rather than a who. We often think of the Holy Spirit as an it rather than a he and we refer to the Holy Spirit as a force rather than a friend. So we took some time last week to understand the person of the Holy Spirit. Chronologically speaking, here we are after the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The disciples have spent 40 days with the risen Jesus. He has been teaching them, as he did when he was alive, about the kingdom of God. They have been given instructions. The instructions were to wait. They were to wait in Jerusalem, and now Jesus is ascended, so they have returned to Jerusalem. They're waiting in the upper room, and this is the scene that unfolds with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, we're in verse 1. It says this, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Jesus was crucified during the festival Passover. Pilgrimages would congregate at the temple and people would come from all over to remember what God did for their ancestors. You remember the Passover is the festival where they celebrated the time where God delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians. They were slaves and now they were free. And Passover represented that time where the angel of the Lord would pass over their homes if they signified their homes with the the blood on the doorposts. Now, according to the Jewish calendar, after Passover, the next pilgrimage for a festival would be for Shavuot, which means seven weeks or 49 days. This festival remembered the covenant that God made with his people at Mount Sinai. This would celebrate God giving them scripture. He would give them the Torah, the law through Moses, and then Moses would give them the word from God. And when God showed up at Sinai, if you remember way back, it describes it with words like this, thunder and lightning and loud sounds and fire. So the day of Pentecost leads us to this scene we just read where Jesus' followers are gathered together in one place. Did you notice how the Holy Spirit is described? It's engulfed with, the place is engulfed with loud sounds, a violent, mighty rushing wind, a cloud and a tongues of fire. And so the imagery helps these people make a connection over time. And the readers of Acts will be reminded that the people of God uh, received the grace in 
seeing the Torah delivered from Mount Sinai. Now on Pentecost, they're seeing similar imagery of loud sounds, wind and fire, to see the Holy Spirit show up for this new covenant. We pick it up in verse 5. It says there, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under the heaven. So I want you to picture the scene here. The noise of the wind drew a crowd, uh, which would seem to indicate that these events occurred probably in the temple area there in Jerusalem. There's a phrase there, it says, every nation under heaven. It's meant to describe the known Roman world. It's meant to describe some 16 different places or nations or ethnicities mentioned where uh, which reached Rome itself to Mesopotamia. This was a large, multi-ethnic crowd. Jesus' followers lived in different lands, but they made the journey to Jerusalem. They came to celebrate these significant um, holidays. In 597, we'll talk about this a little bit later, uh, but the Jews were scattered during the Babylon exile. And so these pilgrimages, these holidays, gave them a reason to come together and to celebrate. They would remember what God did at different moments in Israel's history. And they were spread out in part because of where they chose to live after the exile. We'll look at verse number 6 next. It says this, And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one of them, was hearing them speak in his own language. It's an amazing, amazing story. So each heard what the apostles were saying in their own native languages. Now the people who had come to Jerusalem that day had been born in nations speaking all sorts of languages. They were speaking in known languages, even though they were never taught these languages. In both Greek and Hebrew, I found this very interesting. In both Greek and Hebrew, when I was studying this, the word there for uh, language and tongue is identical. So uh, when we say speaking in tongues here in Acts 2, what we're saying literally by definition and biblically is they're speaking in languages. It's My understanding is this was not an incoherent, unintelligible language. But this was known languages. So what happens in Acts chapter 2, let's just try to figure out what this looks like for us today. Next month, China hosts the Olympics, right? How many of you like the Winter Olympics? I love the Winter Olympics. They do things that I would never do, and I just get to watch it happen. Let's say during the open ceremonies, you and 10 of your friends, 11 of your friends, get invited to go to the open ceremonies and to... Uh, to give a speech. And they have translators there ready during the open ceremonies and there's representatives from every country and yet when you get there and you deliver the speech in English, when people hear it, not because of the interpreters, but because of something happening, they're able to articulate your speech spoken in English but yet received in their native language. So those from... Spain, hear it in Spanish. Those from Korea, hear it in the Korean language. Whatever they're from, they hear it without an interpreter, without any training on the one speaking, but they heard their 
own speech, in their own language. That's what happens. So um, it's interesting because there's several um, identifiers or several things that happen here. First of all, they say, uh, they say in this uh, passage in verse 7, it says this, they were all amazed and astonished. You think? Right? Saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Well, how do they know they were Galileans? You say, well, they spoke a different language. Not in this instance, right? In this instance, they're hearing their own language. And so it's believed that their actual appearance gave them away. You remember in the New Testament when Peter uh, goes through the, a difficult portion of his life right after Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, no, I'm not. And the next thing you know, he denies him. But one of the things that gave Peter away, we think, is the way he was dressed, his, 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 his appearance gave him away, and they identified him as one who followed Jesus Christ during his trial. So there's similar ways of identifying people and where they're from, and so they say, are not all these who are speaking Galileans, verse 8, how is it that we hear each of us in, what does it say, his own native language? So I contend in Acts chapter 2 that what's happening here is not an unintelligible language, but a known language. So Peter takes the time, or uh, Luke takes the time, I should say, and tells us what's happening. Here's where the languages came from. Parthenians. This is a region just north of them. Medes and the Elamites. This is modern-day Iran and Persia. Residents of Mesopotamia. This is ancient Babylon goes through Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. This is modern-day Turkey. It uh, goes to um, Phrygia and Pamphylia, modern-day Turkey. goes to Egypt. It's modern-day Egypt. You guys didn't get that. Egypt was modern-day Egypt. Um, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. This is North Africa. Uh, verse uh, 11 says both Jews and proselytes. That means both those who were uh, followers that were of Jewish culture and the, those who converted later in life. Cretans, this is Crete off the island of Italy. Arabians, this is people off the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. It says this, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Remember, tongues is that word for language. So here's this miraculous scene where they are hearing them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. So why is Luke spending so much time with this narrative? He takes verses to explain the regional differences of where people are from. Is Luke just a geography buff? Um, what Luke is doing, he's, a, he's an amazing um, author. He's pretty brilliant. And what he's actually doing through these verses, verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, telling us where people came from, he's painting a picture of the ancient world. The, it's the equivalent of saying the whole world or the known world. And he starts identifying where people are coming from really everywhere Rome touches. And so on this day of Pentecost, pilgrims from these different places heard the wonders of God spoken in their own languages. So historically, let's understand the impact here. In 597 B.C., Babylonians have come in. They have forced the Jewish population to leave Jerusalem. You have to leave. You have to go to another city. So what happens is, is 597 during the Babylon exile or the Jewish exile, uh, the Jewish people are all scattered now from Jerusalem. 
They've been forced to live other places. Jerusalem is their home, but they haven't lived there for generations. This is 600 years nearly before the birth of Jesus Christ. You know what happens when you live somewhere else for generations? You start adopting the custom. You start adopting the food. You start adopting the culture. You start adopting the language. So for some 600 years, these Jewish people, Jerusalem is home, but they're not allowed to return. uh, Jerusalem is where their forefathers were from. They're not allowed to be there. So they're living in Egypt. They're living in Crete. They're living in uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia, all of these other places, even though Jerusalem is home. And so they learned the languages of these other places. They grew up and they started learning how to speak Egyptian. They learned how to speak all of these other languages. So fast forward now many generations, 600 years later. Jesus now has been born. Jesus now has lived. We are after the death, the burial, and the resurrection. He spent 40 days with his disciples. He's now ascended. The disciples have been waiting in Jerusalem, where they were told to wait for 10 days. And now the Shavuot festival, this festival where people who are now in Egypt and Crete and all of these different places around Jerusalem now get to converge on Jerusalem. It's a homecoming. It's a pilgrimage back home. They come back to Jerusalem for this time, for this specific purpose, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And now these Galileans are now speaking to them about Jesus and who Jesus is and that how he came because he was our Messiah. He's the one that we've been waiting for. He is the one that lived a sinless, perfect life and he was, uh, he was murdered on a cross and he died a brutal death and he was buried and he was, uh, he was put in a tomb and now is risen and ascended. In fact, we just saw him Two weeks ago, we were with Jesus. Two weeks ago, we saw him, and he told us all that was coming about the kingdom of God. This is what's happening right now. Those that gathered there and observed this phenomenon when the mighty rushing wind came in and all these people gathered together, I wonder how many of them were there for Passover just 49 days earlier. I wonder how many of them were there for Passover just seven weeks earlier for that festival, how many of them might have seen the events that transpired when Jesus was on trial? How many of them might have been in the crowd with the others and said, crucify him? How many of them were there at Golgotha's cross as Jesus died and had two criminals on either side? It was likely very similar group of people. Likely many who were there at Passover were now there at Shavuot. You think of the implications of being there just weeks earlier, celebrating Passover and asking Romans to crucify this Jesus. And now they're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ in their own language. They're there hearing the words. These Jewish followers of Jesus Christ now maybe new to the faith. They no longer live in Jerusalem, but they've come here for their specific event. And, and now they get to go back home. Just think of these followers. 
They've come for Shabbat. They've come for this festival. And now because they're all gathered here at the same place, historians believe maybe 100,000 people, they've heard the gospel now in their own language. Guess where they get to go back home now? To where they're from? So now they get to go back to Crete. They get to go back to Pamphylia. They get to go back to Egypt now understanding Jesus Christ crucified but resurrected. And because they heard it in their own language, what do you think they're going to do when they get back home? They get to share it now. It's almost like God had this planned. Am I right? Verse 12, let's look at it. All of them were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Huh? What does this mean? We came for the festival. We were here a few weeks ago, and that was, that was, that was hard. We were in the crowd yelling, Crucify him, and now you're telling us this was the Messiah? And even though we shouted, crucify him, now we, you guys just saw him? He's resurrected? And they were all amazed and perplexed. I think most of my life, being a follower of Jesus Christ, is surmised by these two words, right? Amazed or perplexed. I'm amazed about the goodness of God. I'm amazed about how Jesus Christ would sent his own, or God was sent his only son to die on my behalf. I'm amazed at forgiveness. I'm amazed at reconciliation. I'm also perplexed on what it means to follow him sometimes. I'm perplexed on what does it mean? And so they ask this very important question, what does this mean? They're amazed because what God did was amazing, and Jesus Christ, who we said maybe should be crucified. He's now risen. He's now resurrected. But we're also perplexed saying, well, what does this mean now? And so Peter in the next few verses does a masterful job of explaining what this means. And next week we'll look at Peter's specific response to what does this mean. But I think it begs us to pause here and answer this for ourselves. What does this mean? What does Acts chapter 2 mean for us? So, three ways, three things I think it means. Number one, God keeps his promises. In fact, let's say these words together, these four words, ready, begin. God keeps his promises. What we read in Acts chapter 2 is the very fulfillment of the promise in the Gospels after the resurrection and during the ascension. You remember what happens in Acts 1 and verse 8. This is what it says. You will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's interesting that that phrase is the ends of the earth. How did Luke describe the people that were gathered? People from every nation under heaven. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 paints the picture of this promise. And who is this written to? As you read this, who is this written to? Well, it's written to you. Anyone who's a follower of Jesus Christ, it's been written to the disciples. What will happen? Well, you will receive power. Anyone who's a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, will receive power. And what will this power do? This power will embolden us to be his witnesses. In other words, we will testify about all we experience with Jesus and share the gospel of God's forgiveness and his love. And when will this happen? When the Holy Spirit comes 
God keeps his promises. And one of the promises given in the Gospels in John chapter 14 is, is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now here's the thing. Some of God's promises take a lot longer than others. The promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 wouldn't be fulfilled for generations later about having kids that would outnumber the stars and the sands and the sea. Some of his promises are a lot quicker. This promise here took about 10 days for God to fulfill. From the time it was spoken in Acts 1 and verse 8, by the time we read about it in Acts 2 and verse 4, different promises, different length of time, But God keeps all of his promises. He's a generational God that keeps those promises. He provided the he he promised that the Holy Spirit would be provided, and he promised it to the apostles. He promised it to the early church, and he promised it to you. He has gifted you the Holy Spirit, and it is a promise that he has kept. It's not in your, or maybe it is in your notes, but there's several different ways that the Holy Spirit promise was fulfilled. But first of all, the Holy Spirit regenerates. This is God's promise to us. Apart from spiritual rebirth, we cannot come alive to God on our own. So Jesus says this in John 3.16. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. If you're sitting here today and you've never embraced the truth that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, what we're describing here is that the Holy Spirit makes what was once dead in your life alive. He regenerates. Not only that, is he convicts. This is a promise that comes from God. The Holy Spirit convicts people of their need to repent from sin and to look to Christ for forgiveness. John 16 verse 8 says this, When he comes, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Some of us get confused with what guilt and shame is and what conviction is. Here's the easiest way to know the difference between the two in your life. If you have a feeling that of, of a sin in your life, and your impulse regarding that sin is to withdraw from Jesus. If it's to withdraw from church, if it's to withdraw from people, that's the guilt and shame. That pulls you away from God and his people. That's the enemy of your soul accusing you. That's the enemy of your soul saying you're not good enough. Look at what you've done. You failed here again. You don't deserve God. You should probably just watch online this week. You sinned again. I can't believe you screwed up here again. You know what? You probably, you probably shouldn't even watch because someone, you, you, you should probably just back away. That's guilt and that's shame. What the Holy Spirit does is he convicts you, and that, what that looks like is this. When the Holy Spirit brings sin to your attention, you know what happens in your life? It brings you to God. It brings you to our Heavenly Father for forgiveness. It gives you the courage. He gives you the courage to tell your spouse, I'm sorry. I've messed up, and this is how I messed up. If the feeling inside you is drawing you closer to God and closer to his people and closer to relationships that honor him, that's the Holy Spirit convicting you of that sin. But if the natural impulse of the feeling is to pull away from people, uh, God does not give the spirit of shame or the spirit of, of guilt. He removes that from you. 
So this is what he promises. The Holy Spirit will regenerate. The Holy Spirit will convict. The Holy Spirit will guide. He guides you. When life is dark and the way is vague, the Holy Spirit is our leader. Look at what it says in John. John 16 and verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare you to, to you the things that are to come. He guides you. Now, we have to do our part to listen to that guidance, to embrace that guidance, to seek that guidance, but the Holy Spirit will guide. Not only that, the Holy Spirit is our advocate. This is God's promise to you. He is our advocate. This means this. He is our 24-7 counselor and defender. He's on retainer for you. He's our advocate. You know one of the uh, titles for the devil is the accuser. How many of you heard the accuser in your life from time to time? And he'll look at you and he'll say, you're a drunk. You're a con. You're a liar. You're a thief. You're all of these things. He accuses you. And in that moment, you need to recognize that the Holy Spirit comes in and said, Holy Spirit, here to represent Daniel. By the blood of Jesus, Christ is in him. And I declare him righteous. That's what the Holy Spirit's job is for you. He's the advocate. He advocates for you. This is all about this promise. God keeps these promises. He's our advocate. He, uh, he's also uh, our uh, teacher. He teaches us. The Holy Spirit shows us what is right and what is right, or how to live and what's wrong. Uh, John 14 and verse 26 says this. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring, you, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He teaches us. Look at this list. This is God's promise. Um, everything that Jesus was talking about in John 14 when he said, I have this helper coming along. He's just like me. One day I'm going to have to go and I'm going to have to leave, but I will send another uh, 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 exact replica But he will be in spirit form. He will be the Holy Spirit and he will regenerate. He will bring to life anything that's been death as long as you come to him. He will convict you. He will lead you back to the Father in those moments of sin. He will guide you. He will be your advocate and he will teach you. When Jesus spoke to the disciples, he made them these promises. And God keeps his promises through the Holy Spirit. And what we read in Acts chapter 2 is God keeping his promises and gifting us the Holy Spirit. It's a gift. Number two, what does this mean? God keeps his promises. Number two, the Holy Spirit's presence in our life is not a feeling. Rather, he dwells in us. It's not a feeling, rather he dwells in us. So as, you, as we move through the book of Acts, you're going to see that the Holy Spirit is this powerful person of the Trinity moving and directing and empowering God's church. And we are empowered by God to take action that leads people to the truth of who Jesus is. Romans 8.11 says this when it describes the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God, actually let's read this together. Ready? Begin. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, 
lives in you. All right, let's pause right there. The Spirit of God lives in you. We're going to read it again, but this time change that word you to me. Let's personalize it real quick. Ready? Begin. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in me. Let's hold on right there. The magnitude of these words, church. What would our, what would our mornings look like if we rested in this verse right here? The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead. I don't know about you, but that's a powerful spirit that gave life to Jesus after he was dead. That same spirit lives in me. He goes on to say this, and just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same spirit living within you. Uh, Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. The imagery is powerful. In the Old Testament, the temple was representative of where God's spirit, where his presence dwelled, where it resided. And so not only are believers together uh, the temple, But individually, our bodies are called temples. And when we put our trust, our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, the living God, takes up residence in our lives. And when we embrace that the Holy Spirit indwells in us, it should shift how we lived. Now, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of grace and the Spirit of mercy and the Spirit of comfort. But is he also called the spirit of truth and justice, indicating that he is more than just this fuzzy feeling we get when we pray and worship together. And if we're being honest, it's okay that he's, it's, it's actually welcome that he's more than a feeling. Because if you're like me, our feelings and emotions can lie to us. Right? I feel like nobody likes me. I feel fat. I feel like nobody cares. I feel like I'm all alone. I feel like no one sees me. You recognize any of those? You recognize how all of those are lies? And so it's a good thing that the Holy Spirit is not just this feeling because our feelings and our emotions can mislead us. And one of the crucial tasks of the Holy Spirit is when we're in those places where it feels like no no one cares, when it feels like we're all alone, and we get before our hands and knees before God and we start praying and we don't even know how to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us and he prays for us. Romans says it this way, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God keeps his promises, but... Also, it's, uh, the Holy Spirit is more than just a feeling. He indwells in us, and that's how he's able to go to God on our behalf. Third thing, what does this mean? Well, God's faithfulness should move us to obey his commands. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have been given this command to fulfill, to embrace by the Holy Spirit's power. And at the core of who God is, God is faithful. 
He always shows up and he always keeps his promises. And in our life, as we embrace God for who he is, faithful under all circumstances, it should cause and move us to obey his commands. The believers here were empowered now to share the truth of the gospel with all of the foreign visitors that were there for the festival, first of all. They could now go to those that were from similar areas of the Roman Empire as them and say, give them, they could give the gospel in their own language because they just heard it in their own language. But more than that, they were also empowered to return back home to all of these different places now with a full understanding in their own language of who Jesus is. We'll see next week that Peter sees the moment further and deliver the truth to the crowd about Christ's death and resurrection. And as a result, people put their faith in, G- in Jesus. Boy, I want you to rest on this verse as we consider the Holy Spirit in our lives. This Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead now lives in us. And so we're not called to live for God in our own limited strength. We are called to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. When you read through the Gospels or when you think back through the Gospels, do you remember the extraordinary lengths people took to be with Jesus? Uh, In Mark chapter 2, there is the story of Jesus and he's at the point in his ministry where he is still going and just teaching people about the kingdom of God. That was a popular phrase you'll see in the Gospels. And in Mark chapter 2, we see the story of how Jesus is at someone's home and he's teaching them. And I don't know about you, but if Jesus was in my home, I'd invite some people over. So you can imagine the scene in first century Jerusalem as Jesus is at someone's house and he's talking with them and he's sharing about the kingdom of God and people start coming. Homes weren't big back then and so no doubt they were outside the home as well, peering into the windows, looking and trying to hear the best that they could. And Jesus is sharing with them. And the Bible says that there's a, a group of friends who have someone that needs to see Jesus because he's physically not well. In fact, he's paralyzed. And they got to figure out a way to get him to Jesus because they knew if they got him to Jesus, Jesus would heal them. I hope that's what it's like in your relationships, by the way. And if you just got someone to Jesus, Jesus would take care of the rest, right? So they started to think and they started to find out where exactly is Jesus. And they find out where Jesus is and they make their way to him. And as they do, they see there's no room for them. They, They couldn't get to the outside of the house, let alone the inside. There's so many people there listening and and seeing what's happened. It's in Mark chapter 2. And so the next thing you know, I could just see the scene, right? They're looking at the house, and they, it was common for homes in that day for them to occupy the roof with different things. And some homes that didn't have as much funding would just have leaves or branches making cover for them. This was one of those homes, and the Bible talks about how these friends came to that home. And they couldn't get inside, and so they just found a way in. They put a hole through the top of the roof. And they let down their paralyzed friend. See the extraordinary lengths someone took to go see who Jesus is. Spoiler alert, he heals him, right? Sorry if I ruined that for you, Mark 2. You can read it later. Jesus heals this paralyzed man. 
the extraordinary lengths that someone would go just to bring someone to Jesus. I want you to think now the extraordinary lengths that Jesus went just to be there for you. He lived a sinless, perfect life. He abandoned heaven's glory to be one of us. In all of our weaknesses and all of our imperfections, he chose this vessel to reveal himself to us. He was born to a forgotten family and a teenage girl and a husband that was questioning his life decisions. He was born in a place that was not fit for a baby to be born in. He lived a sinless, perfect life. When the time was ready, as an adult, he took on the weight of the world and began teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God. And yet he knew at some point in the distance he would have to die because it, without the shedding of blood, the Old Testament says, there is no remission, no forgiveness, no atonement for our sins. Because the sins that we bear, the wages of our sin is death. And if we do not pay that price of death, we would need a substitution for that price. And so Jesus became our substitution sacrifice once for all. You see the extraordinary lengths Jesus took just to be for you, to be your Savior, to be there for you. And when he departed, he knew that we would need him. And so he gave this promise in John 14. I'm going to give you another, and he will be with you forever. What does this mean? What is, Daniel, this, this chapter, man, you got... You got guys waiting upstairs in a room for 10 days. The Holy Spirit comes on them, but it's a violent, mighty, rushing wind, complete chaos. Jerusalem, do they not know about social distancing? Because 100,000 people in Jerusalem seems like a lot of people. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. And all of a sudden, we get this phrase that we've latched onto and maybe have been distracted with and maybe we've misunderstood speaking in tongues what does that mean well they spoke in other languages the holy spirit gifted them this and all of a sudden because the holy spirit came upon them they were able to take this message of the gospel and return back home and welcome to the next chapters of the book of acts as we see the gospel going to the ends of the earth and child of god church what we need to wrap our minds around with today is this the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, who fell upon the disciples in the upper room, who empowered them through the next 30 years of the early church's start, who was able to fill Peter with the Holy Spirit. And we'll see in Acts 2, he preached a message and about 3,000 people were saved and baptized. That same Holy Spirit lives in you. What does this mean? Well, God keeps his promises. It takes a long time for us to see sometimes, and sometimes it's really short, but he never fails. Hebrews says this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He keeps his promises. In the middle of the storm, in the middle of the um, uneasiness of life, in the middle of the anxiety or the carelessness of our own decisions, in those moments we can breathe these words, I know God keeps his promises, and I will rest there. 
What does this mean? Well, it means this. The Holy Spirit is not just a feeling. He indwells us. He is in you now as a follower of Jesus Christ. And as such, he regenerates you. Everything that was dead, he brings to life. He convicts you. That feeling, that angst that says you need to come to church. If you're watching online and maybe you have avoided coming to a service because there's this something and nagging inside you where the Holy Spirit is convicting you of something and that's not something we should be uh, passive about. And maybe you're watching online because you know you should be in church, but this is the best you could do is, is just to watch online. Well, this is your opportunity to come to the Father. He guides you. He teaches you. He comforts you. He's your advocate. Maybe some of you right now have the accuser of the brethren punching in overtime on your life. And you're waking up in the morning and he's right there in your face. And he's accusing you. And he's accusing you. You get to, in that moment, know and say, Holy Spirit, I need a lawyer. I need an advocate. And he will stand up for you. What does this mean? God keeps his promises. He indwells in you. And God's faithfulness should move us to obey. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.